Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Today we're talking about robocalls. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago, just a matter of a few years, where the robocalls I was receiving would often begin kind of amusingly with the sound of a cruise ship air horn, kind of, you may have been one a trip to so-and-so. And I was, I was thinking, who do they think that fools? Like I pick up the phone and I hear, uh, you know, the boarding horn of a cruise ship, but kind of a tip-off that it's not a normal person calling me. Well, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated. The mysterious other person uh, who lives in the house where I live, who, who gets more phone calls than I do anyway, has started to get phone calls where a friendly-sounding woman's voice would say, boy, you're even harder to reach than I am, and I'm running around with the kids all the time. And the first time or two, she's looking at the phone thinking, well, I am kind of hard to reach. Who is this? <laughs> and no, it's a robocall. It's a robocall that just has kind of been gussied up to sound a little bit more friendly. Um, so we're going to talk about the world of robocalls, uh, and you are going to learn things uh, that you may or may not have known about them uh, in the past, starting with the fact that a lot of them are, are illegal. Uh, so joining us right now are Jim Terrell, uh, Senior Director of Product Marketing for Transaction Network Services, and Lily Newman, a staff writer for Wired, focusing on information security, digital piracy, privacy, and hacking. Probably piracy as well, too, but uh, privacy is what it said here. Uh, and uh, we should say that Jim Tyrell was in uh, charge of compiling the Transaction Network Services 2018 Robocall Investigation Report, which we will link to on our webpage for this show, as we will also link to uh, Lily's uh, article, The Robocall Crisis Will Never Be Totally Fixed. Uh, that was in Wired. Uh, so, first of all, um, Lily Newman, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, there's a lot of incentive among the telecom companies to cut down on robocalls because obviously people hate getting them. Uh, and there's also a lot of incentive among people to get fewer robocalls. That doesn't seem to result in people getting fewer robocalls, right? The numbers are going up. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the biggest issue with robocalls is, you know, you can do a lot to say, okay, if it's not an individual person making a call, if it's an automated system, that's illegal. You know, if it's uh, if you're spamming people with telemarketing calls, that's illegal. But if you're a criminal who's uh, conducting scams, uh, you are doing something illegal anyway, so you don't really care about the legality of the type of calling you're doing. And that's been a huge issue in trying to deal with this problem. Although, don't uh, my sense is, and we are going to, in the second segment, uh, talk to one of your Wired colleagues about a very specific case. My guess is that a lot of the people doing this don't think of themselves as criminals. They think of themselves as business people engaged in a very specific kind of marketing. They might be aware, uh, uh, you know, of uh, the jot and tittle of legislation, but I don't think they necess do they necessarily think that they're criminals? 
I just think it depends on the type of call. There's, uh, you know, there's such a high call volume, as you, you were saying, every month, you know, just billions and billions of calls that I think there's a big population. That's what you're describing, which is, you know, sort of borderline marketing practices. Uh, and then I think there's also a big population that are just legitimately scams that are trying to scam people out of their money. Uh, or, you know, get their information uh, or get them to, uh, you know, things like uh, enter this uh, sweepstakes, things like that. You know, if you pay a little bit of money, you could win a ton of money. Those types of scams are definitely straight up illegal scams. So there's both. There's plenty of room for both. So um, before we go over to Jim, Lily, I, I guess in March of this year, maybe every month from now until something is done, a new record was set. But we're talking about billions of call- robocalls per month now? Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's a little tough to get at accurate numbers or be certain of the numbers because uh, a lot of those billions uh, figures come from robocall blocking firms that also have a product to sell. So, you know, it's in their interest to kind of hype the situation. Uh, So, you know, it's it's impossible to get sort of perfect numbers, at at least as far as I know. But their numbers are at least uh, precise, whether or not they're accurate. You know, they they are reporting sort of similar numbers every month. So we can look at that. And then also the FTC uh, talks about the number of complaints that they get every month. And while that's not you know, related to a total number of calls, they've said that their uh, complaint volumes have been fairly steady. I I believe those numbers are in the tens of thousands per month. Uh, So, you know, the fact that they're getting a steady amount of complaints is a way to know that the problem isn't improving. All right. So, uh, Jim Tyrell, help us understand what kind of robocall is illegal and what kind of robocall is sanctioned. Yeah, so there are definitely different types of of robocalls. There are the positive robocalls. So, for example, to inform a community of an event like a school closing, for example, or an appointment confirmation or, you know, prescription refill. CBS uses, you know, that same technology. And, you know, those are are really kind of positive robocalls. On the other end, like Lily said, there's the high risk where – they're try- where, where people are using deceptive call practices to, uh, you know, try to defraud you of, of money. They can be, you know, tax scams or customer care scams, et cetera. And then there's this wide variety in the middle that we call nuisance calls. Like you said, it could be a, a promotional offer. It could be a charity. You know, somebody reminding you that you have, you know, you have debt, but they're, you know, doing it five times a day. Um, so there are, you know, kind of various levels of robocalls, and so that's that's what we, you know, that's what we try to uh, to take a look at. There are, you know, a couple of a uh, couple of laws out there. The, you know, the Telephone Communication Protections Act (TCPA). There's the, you know, the Federal Debt Collection Protections Act as well. Um, and then there's the Caller ID, uh, Caller ID Truth and Truth and uh, Truth and Accuracy Act that. Um, you know, kind of helps to try to differentiate between those uh, different calls. But, you know, as Lily mentioned, um, you know, kind of borderline, it's hard to define, you know, from a legal perspective, you know, what, you know, what you're allowed to do or, or what you're not allowed to do. And it can certainly vary by state as well. 
So, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about things that, that are attempted. And by the way, if people have questions about this, we can try to juggle you in here. Our uh, phone uh, number is 860-275-7266. No robocalls, please. 860-275-7266. I suppose there's no point in saying that because... You know, the robot won't know anyway. So um, uh, things have been tried. Uh, Lily, uh, Jim just enumerated uh, some of the, the legislation uh, that exists. There's also new industry technology tools. <laughs> There's something, uh, these acronyms are great. There's something called STIR and SHAKEN. Uh, what kinds of technology tools are there to begin to combat this problem? Yeah, so uh, these types of pernicious robocalls, what's really going on most of the time is that they're spoofing the caller ID that's showing up. So instead of seeing, you know, the real number where the call starts, uh, there's all different systems to kind of bounce these calls around the telephony network and get them to, you know, show up as coming from somewhere else. So that's how you get those calls that look like they come from your own area code or, you know, look similar to a number of someone you recognize or sometimes even is a number in your contacts list. And, you know, the way that's happening is through the spoofing. So protocols like Stir and Shaken uh, are trying to add a sort of cryptographic layer of authentication so that if there's a discrepancy there in what a call claims to be versus where it's actually originating from, uh, it'll flag that, uh, which is obviously, it, they'll work on landlines, but obviously especially relevant uh, for mobile platforms where, you know, you can have on your display some sort of visual indication that there may be a discrepancy. Uh, and that also is going to help law enforcement uh, be able to trace calls back because this is adding sort of a layer of authentication within the infrastructure of the telephony network. So it gives a little more insight into where the calls are coming from and sort of a, you know, a track record of where the call bounced around. Uh, so that, you know, should be able to uh, help people trace back and figure out more about both where the calls are coming and give people a heads up if something's fishy. But uh, again, it, you know, it doesn't completely solve everything. It's just an important step in trying to have a better sense of what these calls are. Right. So, and, and I think that's an important thing to emphasize, Lillian, it's something that comes through in, in your article, that it's kind of an arms race. Uh, you know, they've tried to figure out something, then the, you know, they being the spammers and, and, and robocallers uh, figure out a new thing. Then the government and the telecom companies try to figure out a way to, to, to fight back against it. But if anybody's waiting for the moment where they don't get robocalls anymore, uh, I gather, Lily, that that moment is a long, long way away. Yeah, I mean, stir and shaken are great, and a lot of the other, you know, technological uh, improvements that are coming are really important. So it's not to, uh, you know, say that they're not or discredit them at all. That they're really excellent. But yeah, the bottom line is it's a lot like email spam, where uh, the goal is to get to a point where. Uh, things are kind of under control and it's more manageable because the last couple of years, you know, the the in, uh, input from consumers is that it's become really unmanageable and just a really big impact on daily life. So the idea with robocalls similar to email spam is just like, let's get it to a workable level where there's the occasional errant you know, call, but for the most part, we can go back to picking up our phones. So, yeah, Jim, uh, tell me whether you agree with that. In other words, is this a winnable war or just one where the the balance of power tips back and forth? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Colin. You know, it is really an arms race. We 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 call it a TNS. It's kind of a game of whack-a-mole um, where you want to try to limit the number of holes that the, that the bad actors can pop into. So, you know, stir shaking is is one of those that'll you know kind of squeeze the squeeze the bad actors uh, you know in a certain way until that becomes more widely deployed. It's going to you know continue to be a challenge. Still doesn't address the you know the call intent of of the bad actor. The bad actor could get you know, legitimate phone numbers from a from a carrier, and you know, continue to make you know you know bad robocalls. Um, in, in addition, there are some limitations to to stir shaken uh, that it's you know domestic only at this point, and it's you know using the voice over IP technology. There's still lots of carriers that have um, you know the traditional what we call traditional you know telephony in place in their network, and so you know call goes call happens to go down one of those paths, you know, all of that header information within the, uh, within the message ends up, ends up getting lost. So, again, it'll be, it'll be definitely, uh, you know, kind of an arms race, but, you know, the more tools that, that, that we have on our side and, and, you know, what we do from an analytics perspective uh, and, and the more ubiquitous this stir shaking becomes available, then it, it just gives the, the bad actors uh, – you know, less of a chance to, uh, you know, to be able to perpetrate their fraud and scam uh, consumers out of their uh, out of their hard-earned money. So uh, we should say that STIR stands for Secure Telephone Identity Re- uh, Revisited, and SHAKEN is for Signature-Based Handling of Asserted Information Using Tokens. But the basic idea here is these uh, are technologies that make it harder for spammers to mask their identities and make it look like they're calling from somewhere else. Sometimes even your phone number, as Lily was suggesting before, could be used, uh, could appear uh, on the screen of somebody else, even though the call isn't really coming from your uh, phone number. That's what spoofing is. I guess uh, some of these terms may not be all that familiar. So, so Lily, you know, I think a lot of people, they do a couple of things probably. They do, you know, uh, the national do not call registry, and then they do maybe they have some kind of blocking thing on their phone where if they get a call from one of these numbers, they can block it for future use. Um, does any of that help that much? Yeah, I mean, those are the sort of options out there at this point to use uh, either a third-party uh, blocking service or sort of blacklist, whitelist services that, you know, are trying to manage which numbers are good and bad, things like that. Uh, also, as you said, services from the carriers, uh, you know, it's worth putting all your numbers on the do not call list, uh, even though... You know, as we discussed, that's sort of a legal issue. So people, law-abiding entities will respect that and entities that are not law-abiding or that are in this marketing gray area, as you were talking about, will not necessarily respect that. So it doesn't solve the problem. But, yeah, I agree that the goal is to just use as many of the tools at your disposal as possible. And then additionally, uh, in additional legislation, uh, the government also does uh, law enforcement actions, you know, even just today, the FTC announced a new push of, uh, I believe, four cases that they brought, uh, some of them in in conjunction with the DOJ. Uh, And, you know, so they're trying to deal with the problem from that side, create disincentives for people to continue this type of illegal behavior. So everyone's working on it, but I think the key that you know, made it get so bad was that some some actions were slow to happen. For example, 
we only just uh, got legislation mandating a timeline for when the carriers need to adopt stir and shaken. Uh, and, you know, the FCC has been kind of slow on making decisions about uh, allowing the carriers to block certain types of calls. So, you know, now things are really picking up this year because it got to such a crisis point, but uh, everyone needs to just move as quickly as possible on all of these things. So, you know, Jim, it also seems like a lot of these things have two sides to them. I'll give an example. On the one hand, we don't want government or telecom companies interfering with legitimate political or electoral activities. So robocalling is uh, sometimes used to motivate people to go vote, tell people where their voting uh, booth uh, is, their polling place is. Uh, Sometimes it's the voice of somebody, you know, that they know and respect. It's like President Obama and telling them to go out and vote, whatever. And but. But we don't want government meddling with the political process at that level. On the other hand, people who are nefarious and want to meddle with the political process and maybe want to undermine democracy may use some of the same technologies to send people to the wrong polling places or otherwise create disincentives to participate effectively in the same democracy. So, Jim Tyrell, I, how, how do we handle that problem? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, so the tools that, that are you know, easily used for good are the same tools that, that are used used for bad. So, you know, if you do see a, you know, it, it, you know, always double check, you know, what your voter registration card has because, you know, they'll, they'll try to, you know, tell you to go to the wrong polling place, et cetera. Um, you know, so I'd just be wary of, you know, what, you know, what messages are, are coming across. I mean, it's, it's really no different than, you know, what you see on Facebook. Some of it's real, some of it's, you know, not so real. So you, you know, got to kind of double check, you know, where, where, uh, you know, where the information is coming from and, and, you know, use a little bit of, of, uh, of, you know, common sense and as well as, uh, as well as, uh, you know, double checking, you know, what they're, you know, what they're telling you to do. So, you know, I definitely would see that happening within the, the election season where, uh, and we've seen robocalls, you know, certainly come from, uh, you know, people purporting to be, you know, from the political party, et cetera, that are, you know, giving out false information. I mean, Lily, it seems to me, I'm going to come back to this in the third segment, but let me ask you now. It seems to me that the people who should be the most incentivized right now are the big telecom companies, particularly if I decide that uh, that I just don't, you know, maybe I want to have a smartphone, but I don't really like the, the experience I'm having using my phone as a phone, you know, and, and maybe I could find better encryption someplace else, like on WhatsApp or whatever, or something like that. I mean, I'm astonished that Verizon and its its brethren aren't you know just apoplectic about this and doing something about it. I mean, they must have they're huge telecom companies. They must have more resources than these spammers do. Yeah, I definitely think there was a wake up call at some point, kind of recently, where they realized like, oh, this is really bad for business if we want people to keep using phones. <laughs> I definitely think, and I I agree with you that that was definitely a thought that crossed their minds, and I uh, also agree that I'm surprised they weren't concerned about it sooner. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the big issue, as you were also mentioning, is people were very hesitant to overstep and to potentially block legitimate calls and, you know, uh, both on the U.S. government side 
and on the carrier side, you know, they really didn't want to be in the position of being blamed for blocking legitimate calls or, you know, you can think of sort of worst case scenarios where like some uh, well-intentioned robocalling defense technology accidentally is blocking 911 calls or, you know, some terrible thing. So I see why there was some amount of hesitation, but I just think we're years past uh, doing nothing as a result of that. You know, there's got to be a way. And I, as I said before, I think the analogy to email spam holds up pretty well. You just want to be at the point where perhaps very occasionally there's a mistake where a legitimate email is going to the spam folder, but you know, the vast, vast majority of the time you're uh, deploying defenses that are just catching the sort of obviously problematic calls. And even that type of reduction would be significant. So I think that's what people are working on now. So, Jim Tyrell, in your report, uh, you say that one-third of the calls uh, people are getting uh, are either high-risk or nuisance. Uh, So I think we all know what nuisance means, Uh, and these are the calls we're trying to swat away like gnats. They're people trying to get us interested in things we don't want. I assume high-risk are the calls saying, let me into into your computer so I can fix something, or give me your credit card so, you know, I can make sure that some account you have doesn't lack those kinds of things. Do we know how much money is just taken out of people's hands through this process in a given year? Yeah, so interestingly enough, the, F- the FT- FC- FTC, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, you know, does have a number on that. They're saying it's about $9.5 billion dollars annually, which you know, roughly breaks out to about $430 a person. So you know, when you think about it, there's, there's some pretty good money in, in you know, creating a high-risk Environment now. Lily talked about you know there's there's been recent enforcement action from the from the FCC and the DOJ and you know they've, they've announced millions of, of dollars of fines. But you know unfortunately, typically the, the it's a shell type of a corporation. And while they they do take the bad actors out, which is a good thing, um, they they've been very uh, they've they've been able to recover very little. I think it's you know amounted more into the to the thousands. So you know when you think about it. It's it's unfortunately uh, you know an easy business to get into and, a, and an easy business to, to to make money on. So you know um, it, 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 it's, it's it's definitely a challenge. And that's why you see the you know the growth you know con- of these types of calls continue to uh, to increase. All right, so we're going to have to stop there because we've got a lot of other stories to tell here, but thanks so much. We'll we'll post both of these things on the webpage that we do about this at wnpr.org slash Colin. All the shows are there. You can read the report that uh, Jim Tyrell uh, capped captained for the Transaction Network Services. It's the Transaction Network Services 2018 Robocall Investigation Report and uh, also uh, Lily's uh, excellent article for Wired, uh, The Robocall Crisis Will Never Be Totally Fixed. Uh, So thanks very much uh, to both of these guests, Jim Tyrell and Lily Newman. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to tell you about how one of these scammers or spammers or whatever they are was actually tracked to his lair. So 
So you just heard me ask Lily Newman that question about like why aren't why aren't the telecom companies with all their resources and you know why haven't they done a better job uh, of of tracking down and blocking uh, and taking out of the business uh, these um, bad actors who are making phone use less attractive to us. But there are other people who get victimized, other people, well, people like us get victimized, obviously. There are other corporate entities who get victimized, particularly when they are impersonated by uh, a spammer or robocaller. So here to tell us about how one of those operations was tracked to its lair, although it turns to have, uh, to have been kind of multiple operations. Alex Palmer is joining us, freelance writer, contributor to publications including Wired GQ, The New York Times Magazine, Smithsonian, and others. This is very specifically about a piece he wrote called On the Trail of the Robocall King. So it's like a King Crimson album. Uh, appeared in Wired uh, in March of 2019. Uh, Alex Palmer, welcome to our show. Thanks, Don. Thanks for having me. So this begins, of all places, at TripAdvisor, uh, which we don't think of as a big player in the telecom industry. But they had a problem, right? They had a problem because people who used TripAdvisor were suddenly getting really, really mad about calls that they were getting. What were these calls? So this actually came to their attention just from one specific call. It was very bad luck by this robocall scammer. He put in a robocall, and it happened to go to the wife of TripAdvisor's general counsel. And the call said, hey, congratulations on your accumulation of TripAdvisor points. You've won a free trip to the Caribbean or Mexico or some other luxurious destination. And of course, the wife of the general counsel knew that TripAdvisor points aren't real and TripAdvisor doesn't do robocalls. So this is where the trail began with this one call that seemed to be impersonating TripAdvisor and using their name to trick people into some sort of deal. Now, the person that they referred this matter to in TripAdvisor is somebody that you and they and he himself, I guess, uh, describe as Fred Garvin, which is not his real name and comes from kind of a funny source that we don't really have time to explain, probably. But, (laughs) Alex, if you were writing a novel about this, you couldn't have invented a better kind of cyber detective than Fred Garvin. Tell us about him. Yeah, he really is the perfect character for this kind of work. He's a little bit quirky, obsessive, but extremely skilled and determined. He had a kind of a hopscotching background, just trying to find some job that would be interesting enough to hold his very specific kind of attention. And he eventually landed a TripAdvisor through a different job, just moderating content on their posts. But then his managers started to realize that he had this real obsessive streak, and he did what he liked to call research. As a kid, he would just sort of track down people and try to get autographs and, you know, communicate with them as a 12-year-old from his bedroom, writing letters and finding their addresses. So he had a real talent and a real knack for identifying people, which came in very handy when he landed at TripAdvisor and quickly found a place on their anti-fraud team. Right. So um, he starts trying things, ways of trying to figure out where all these calls come from, where do they, you know, who's doing them, who's originating them. And he does initially what some people might, you know, in our audience might think about doing, for example, calling one of these robocall numbers back. The problem was exactly as Jim and Lily described in the first segment, the number you see on your phone isn't the real number, right? Exactly. So yeah, he had the same thought a lot of us would probably have, hey, I'll just call this back and tell him to stop calling me. But it turns out when you do that, on the other end of the line is someone who's just as confused as you are, wondering how their phone number got used in some giant scam. So yeah, as your previous guest said, it's neighbor spoofing. It's where the scammers can make it look like the number they're calling from is something close to yours. The idea being, one, that you're more likely to pick up if you recognize the area code and the neighborhood code. 
but also that it's harder and more dangerous for telecom companies to block those calls because it looks like legitimate traffic. It looks like, oh, people within the neighborhood are calling each other, so they're less likely to block them. So scammers know to use that technique to get their calls through. Now, his, his next, uh, the next thing he did was to become one of the few people in the world who really looks forward to getting robocalls, right? I mean, he thought, well, I'll just, I, by the way, I happen to be, have a very close relationship with someone who does the same thing for essentially the same reason to kind of try to figure out what they're doing. But he just started taking all these robocalls. That's right. He uh, just registered new phones, started signing up for lists, trying to get on as many scam lists as he could. And those calls that all the rest of us dread and hang up on, he was waiting for them all day. But he kept getting all sorts of deals, as we're all familiar with. You know, he won the lottery, and uh, he had student loan debt, and his car was going to get uh, taken possession of. But he couldn't get the, the one he was looking for, the one that could connect TripAdvisor to whoever was pulling the scam. Right. We should say that, although Fred ultimately comes up with a very different idea about this, the general recommendation is don't don't stay on the line once you realize that it's a robocall. And by the way, typically what happens is you hear a robotic or simulated greeting at first, the first thing there trying to kind of get you involved or see if you'll answer. If you do if you do stay on the line and talk, then a live operator will come on and, and try to work with you. Uh, so for people's own safety and to discourage all this, there's a sense don't don't you know don't play with them, don't play ball, just get off the line as soon as you know what it is. So anyway, he the other thing that he does is really interesting. Is it turns out there really are a lot of really ticked off people, and they're on the complaint forums of TripAdvisor. So I guess he gets in touch with them too, right? That's right. He puts together sort of his army of amateur sleuths, people who had been posting on TripAdvisor forums and elsewhere on the web saying, hey, I'm getting these horrible, annoying phone calls from TripAdvisor, you know, 10 times a day telling me I want a deal. If you guys don't stop this advertising, I'm never using your service again. I'm never coming on here again. And there was actually one woman I talked to who had gotten a call through to TripAdvisor's CEO and president saying, listen, stop it with these calls. I'm so sick of them. And he called her back right away and said, it isn't us. You know, somebody's impersonating us, and the president and CEO hooked her up with Fred so that they could uh, debrief about what she had learned. And, of course, like everyone else in his army of amateur sleuths, she had been taking down these phone numbers, and Fred was compiling them, trying to find some sort of common factor between them. So um, we're going to skip a few steps. You should read Alex's article anyway. It really does uh, read like a movie treatment or something. Uh, and But eventually he does find something going on in, in Mexico, right? He discovers a call center industry in Cancun and the surrounding areas. That's right. Everything seemed to point back to these companies. They're all based in the Yucatan Peninsula, especially in Cancun. What Fred found was that um, all these websites, all the content, all the contact numbers all went to the same location. It seemed to be sort of one network of companies that were all making these deals and, and touting these sales. So what Fred thought was, okay, these are the guys making these robocalls. You know, they're putting out the robocalls, and like you said, the first thing is just a robot voice, but then when you get put through and say, yes, I'm interested, it always goes to Cancun. So he thought, okay, this is it. This is where these guys are. But it turns out that wasn't quite the case. Right. So I'm going to skip a few more steps, although there's a great scene in Alex's article where Fred Garvin, this, you know, in, this investigator operating from within TripAdvisor, finally on his personal cell phone gets the TripAdvisor robocall, and it's all very exciting, and rockets go up. 
off uh, as you're reading anyway. Uh, anyway, eventually he discovers a guy here in the U.S. named uh, Adrian Abramovich. And, and just to give you kind of a little uh, taste of uh, Adrian Abramovich's, Abramovich, uh, let's go to uh, one of the uh, one of the questions that he had to field ultimately in front of a, a Senate committee. This is a Republican Senator John Thune of South Dakota questioning Abramovich uh, during a Commerce Committee hearing on robocalls. Mr. Bromovich, which resorts did you work with? Did TripAdvisor, Expedia, Marriott, or Hilton ever authorize you to use their names during these calls? Uh, I never misrepresented any of those hospitality companies. All the vacations, in, uh, everything was included. The customers knew what packages they were purchasing. They're getting a discount vacations because they're going to have a 90-minute timeshare presentation. So that's the voice of the robocall king. How big a king was he, Alex? I mean, do we know, do we have a sense of the size uh, of this man's robocall empire? We do, because the FCC, like you said, before he got called before the Senate, the FCC had uh, put him up on charges of being one of the largest robocallers they've ever investigated. So during a three-month period, they found him responsible for almost 100 million robocalls. So, you know, within... The giant ocean that is robocalling today it was a pretty small drop, but you know, for the people who were getting them and for the FCC investigation, that was, was the biggest one they'd ever uncovered. And he ended up getting the largest fine in FCC history at that time, $120 million. Right. So just pause and think about that, though, if you're listening right now. So, yeah, he they found him as the source of around $100 million uh, uh, illegal robocalls. But as we said earlier, some of the stats about this indicate it's like $4.6 billion a month. So this is the biggest fish they ever caught. But the sea is full of enormous fish doing this. Let's also uh, hear this same man uh, in the same committee hearing. Uh, he's being questioned now by Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, who wants to know if he ever gets them. The interruption to consumers comes the moment the phone starts to ring. Do you agree with that, Mr. Ivanovich? Uh, in a general con- context, uh I agree to that. I'm not talking about specific on my case, but I receive four or five robocalls a day from my local number lately. And more after the FCC headlines, I've been receiving more spoof calls than ever, myself. And you don't like it when you get those calls? I just declined the, the call. But do you, do you understand why it irritates people, Mr. Obama? Yes, I understand. So you got to meet this guy, Alex. You attract him to his rather palatial uh, home, and, and you got to talk to him. What, what sort of person did you meet? He was very interesting. So, yeah, I, I found him the same way he probably found a lot of the people he ended up calling, which was just a public database with his name, phone number, and address. And I turned up at this very posh neighborhood in Miami, right on the water, gated community with you know, tennis courts, swimming pools, security guards. Um, and he was at first very reluctant to speak with me, his lawyer had advised him not to speak to anyone, but eventually we just started talking, and it was clear that he really felt uh, like he was the victim here, like he had been wronged and he had been turned into sort of the face, the kingpin that he didn't believe he was. Um, and I got to see, like you said, his sort of his lair where the calls were being made, his home office, and that's what was both terrifying and fascinating as well was it was basically one desktop computer. And from that, with the technology today, you can, you know, build a mini business, a mini empire, and make hundreds of millions of robocalls. So as you could probably hear from his testimony, he has a South American accent. He's uh, from Argentina by way of Poland, 
originally from his grandparents, and he's always been sort of a, a small-time businessman in Miami, mostly marketing companies, almost a dozen over the years that he starts up and closes. But this was obviously his uh, biggest brush with fame and with infamy, and he wasn't very happy with it. He felt that he had been wronged and that the conduct of the government toward him had been unfair and that he was being painted as something he wasn't. Right. You know, I, I asked uh, the guest in the first segment whether these people think of themselves as criminals or uh, or evildoers. Uh, and I, my guess is most of them sort of think that they're almost legitimate and they're just trying to get around the rules. Although a, a little bit of a tip off with this guy is in that man cave of his where he's running this empire out of with these kind of this modest looking equipment. He's got all these pictures <laughs> figurines of Scarface and mobsters and Freddy Krueger? I mean, what does that say? Yeah, he's got a thing for villains. His whole man cave is decked out in, uh, in like you said, sort of posters, uh, paintings, figurines, things of these infamous movie villains. So he certainly has a certain uh, uh, affinity for the, the darker side of human nature. But the way he had, pointed, he had painted it was that uh, in his testimony before the Senate was that there are good guy robocallers and bad guy robocallers, and that he was a good guy because he was pitching legitimate wares, whereas the, the bad guys are just doing scams. So he tried very hard to stay on that side of the moral line. But like you said, it's probably a little more gray than most of us yeah. realize. I think if you draw the line yourself, then you have an yeah. advantage. And that's basically what he'd done. So we're essentially out of time. I do really encourage people uh, to read Alex's articles because there's, there's more stuff in there than we can possibly get to now. And, and you know, just very quickly, uh, Alex, one thing that Fred Garvin decided was that we're doing the wrong thing, or at least if we wanted to completely bankrupt these people, uh, what we could do is stay on the line with them and talk to them. If everybody did that, it would fry their circuits, right? That's right. The economic model for them works because it's cheap to place a call, and if nobody answers, it's even cheaper. All you need is you know, one person a day to answer, pick up, and actually go for your scam, and it works out in your favor right. because all the other ones are so quick. But if everybody, like Fred Garvin does now, if you answered the phone and kept them you know, pulling their string for three hours and then said, ah, I'm not going to do it, and hung up on him. It would drive their business model because they lose all that time that they could use to try to find customers. Right. So. I can report that there's at least one other person doing that, somebody if, if that I know. If you're very it'll work. Yes, absolutely. Alex Palmer, thanks so much for joining him, uh, joining us. The article, uh, we'll link to that on our website, too. We've got one more set of stories to tell you. So we've talked about the current state of robocalls. But imagine if one day I got a robocall or a call uh, from what appeared to be somebody that I knew, not some rando trying to get me to re-up my, my warranty on my Subaru or something like that. But what if it appeared to be coming from Bill Curry? Okay, that's a bad example. I'd probably let that go directly to voicemail. Let's say it was coming from senior producer Betsy Kaplan, who's called me like three times in eight years. So I know it's important. And I get on the line and I hear Betsy's voice starting to talk to me. Except here's the problem. What if it's not actually Betsy? How could that be? We're going to have that explained to us right now by Tharun Wadwa, a writer, academic, and entrepreneur focusing on technology, security, and public policy, currently a visiting instructor at Carnegie Mellon, and author of the upcoming book, Identified, The Digital Transformation of Who We Are. So you are seeing, Tharun, uh, an alarming and different future uh, for what we refer to as robocalls. Tell us how you think it's going to change. Yes, Colin, absolutely. What I'm seeing is advancements in forgery technologies all over the place. Uh, right now, we're talking about audio forgery technology. And what that means is using computers and machine learning to take a little bit of audio, a few voice clips, 
and then recreate a model of a person to get them to say whatever you want. Now, today, it's still a bit choppy. It, it's still, um, you know, the average person likely could tell what they're hearing is not real. But in the next few years, in the next few months, really, that's going to get very, very advanced to the point where you may not be able to tell if that's really your producer or not. We're seeing the same thing happening with video in terms of deep fakes and the ability to make people look like they're saying something they're not. And all across the Internet, in terms of phishing and forgery and spam, there's a whole host of new powerful technologies coming online that we're really not prepared to deal with yet. Yeah, I think that not prepared part is a big key because already people are not prepared for what we've already referred to as spoofing. The number appears to be the number of somebody you know. It seems to be the number of somebody associated with you. So you take the call uh, and people have not figured out that this is happening, why it's happening, how it can be done to them. So you add to this this next layer of the voice you hear being the voice that you expect to hear. And, and so just just to give people a sense of this, and then Tharun, I'm going to have you comment. So there's a technology called Lyrebird. It's spelled L-Y-R-E, although you could probably spell it the other way, too, and, and not be wrong, that allows this to happen. Well, first of all, Tharun, expl- explain what Lyrebird is and how effective it can be. So Lyrebird is a, is a technology that essentially allows you to create um, many different voice clips and use that to create a model, and then you can use that to speak, to say things, Lyrebird's intended purpose is to create a service for people who have lost their voice. So that's how they approach it, and they have some professional voice actors. So what I see with this technology is the ability to to recreate a person's voice, but you set that against the backdrop of the last two decades of data breaches we've had in America. And this is where I get particularly concerned, because it's not really about you know having a person's voice sound familiar. It's what they're saying that, that's, that worries me, because you now have the ability to find out rich, intimate details about nearly any, any American you want online for, for very little money. You know, your mother's maiden name is no longer a secret that's protected in that sense. So you combine the ability to create realistic-sounding voices with the ability to gain really, really deep personal information about people. And I worry that, um, that this is going to create a crisis of trust and we're no longer going to be able to, to know whether the voice calls we get are real or not. Right. So, and see, I, I just to sort of double down on what you said. And so, for example, when my friend and pastor, uh, Nancy Butler, was dying of ALS, I don't know whether they used Lyrebird, but they used something to record her voice so that when she couldn't really produce vocal sounds anymore, right. she could, using a keyboard or something like that, uh, say certain things. And so... The difference between that, as I recall, those were kind of stock phrases, and then maybe she could type something out and it would kind of come out in her voice. What you're talking about and what we're talking about is more sophisticated. Our producer, Josh Nalea, decided to experiment with Lyrebird, uh, recording something in his own voice and then setting up Lyrebird to reproduce it. Let's hear how that sounded. Hey, folks, this is Josh Nalea, and I'm one of Colin's producers. Basically, I'm just interrupting this show to give this whole liar bird, or, or is it leer bird? Maybe. Well, however it's pronounced, I'm here to give it a test. Oh, and in case you were wondering, this took me about two minutes to create, with absolutely no training or technical knowledge. Frightening future indeed, if you ask me. Hey folks, this is Josh Nalayan, and I'm one of Colin's producers. Basically, I'm just interrupting this show to give this whole liar bird, or it is liar bird, maybe? Well, however you pronounce it, I'm here to give it a test. Oh, in case you were wondering, this took me about a minutes to create with absolutely no training or technical knowledge. Writing future in need, if you ask me. 
So that actually is how Josh sounds after seven or eight uh, fog cutters. But, <laughs> sounds um, a little drunk. Yeah, yeah. sounds a little drunk. But he did that in the way that you say. In other words, he, he dictated a few phrases into Lyrebird and then Lyrebird. So, and I guess this kind of technology, it, the more phrases it gets from you, the more words it gets from you, the more it can kind of flesh out its almost algorithmic understanding of your voice, right? Exactly that, and, and it's a bit deceptive. Here we are in 2019, and that, that doesn't sound good. If you got a call like that, you'd be worried about Josh. You wouldn't be uh, thinking that Josh is trying to scam you in that sense. But things move really, really fast, and the way they move with these particular technologies is, first, it requires a lot less audio samples. So instead of Josh speaking maybe 100 phrases like uh, Lyrebird asked for today, perhaps it will only need 10 clips in the future. And then you see really advanced software be put online in places like GitHub, which are code repository where people can go download the software for themselves and experiment with it. And as a result of all of this, it becomes more convincing and more versatile. So, um, you know, Lyrebird may not be the product that people are using um, for this sort of thing next year or the year after or the year after that. There's so many companies working on this. You have Google, you have Baidu in China, Adobe here in America, and then you have many, many other startups. So there are many approaches being taken to creating these, these voice models and this sort of training. Lyrebird is just one of several, and this will move deceptively fast. Earlier in the show, we've heard a little bit about things like stir, shake, and these technologies that would essentially assign a certificate of trust to an outbound call. So you'd be able to tell that it wasn't really Josh or it wasn't really Betsy Kaplan. It was, you know, because it didn't have that little certificate, as I understand it. I don't know. What's your sense about the effectiveness of that? It's a start. It's a good start because, you know, what I get at is that we need to create a, a, a basis for credibility in the future. We need to know whether the call that we're getting, whether the message that we're getting is real and authentic in, in a way that's uh, viable and usable. So I see cryptographically signing things as a step in the right direction. Now, all of that needs to be done in the background. No human being should ever really interact with that information unless they're trying to verify an image or, or see if a video is real, that sort of thing. And that will create building a technical infrastructure and a layer that just doesn't really exist yet today. So shake and stir is, is a good idea in theory. My, my issue with it in practice is that it's taking too long to implement. Um, some of the timelines we've seen are 2020 or 2021 for, for pilot studies and rolling it out. And by that time, you know, the, the fraudsters and hackers, et cetera, will move on to, to the next technology. And so I don't have a problem with the idea of shake and stir in theory. In fact, it makes a lot of sense. But in practice, I think it's going to be too little too late. Although, I mean, let me just sort of, I have no idea, but just for, for the fun of conversation, it seems to me that the tech companies, the telecom countries, co companies, they have a tremendous incentive to do this, to do it soon, to get it right. If my attitude towards my cell service, towards Verizon, is increasingly one of distrust and dissatisfaction, won't I go seeking greener pastures? Wouldn't they have a huge financial, financial incentive to fix this somehow? This is exactly what I've been trying to warn the telecom companies about. To this point, they've had also a financial incentive to keep, you know, the volume of calls up on their networks. And all. it's not that they're making huge amounts of money from robocalls, but there is a mixed incentive there. But you've seen uh, companies like Verizon try to charge their users as an extra service, $3 extra a month for this sort of robocall screening thing. That seems so dangerous and foolish to me. If you look at what's happening with, with telecom, exactly as you said, we're starting to distrust our phone. So I believe the logical conclusion of this is that if this continues in the same capacity, we're going to switch over to more data-based calling, things like FaceTime audio or WhatsApp or uh, Skype, that sort of thing, where we can have a, a more robust technical infrastructure 
over securing calls, and we're going to abandon voice-based calling altogether. So unless these companies really understand that this is an existential threat to their business, I, I don't see them taking this seriously enough. And that idea of charging us extra for actual reliable, non-fraud-filled telecommunication. Fortunately, I mean, cell phone bills are really low right now, right? They don't bother us at all. So um, adding a few more dollars, we're not. I mean, that seems that that itself seems crazy. People already feel like their smartphone costs way too much money. Um, and so the notion that you would charge them, you would pass the cost of your own incapacity along exactly. to the user is going to infuriate at least the more, I don't know, the more vigilant users. And where does this stop? Today we're talking about, you know, spoofing robocalls, these sorts of things. I don't think consumers will accept this because, as you said, freedom from being scanned shouldn't be a luxury good. That shouldn't be something that we're paying for. That should be something that's included in the service that we provide. Uh, this is basic security. And I think you're right also that, I mean, people increasingly look at their smartphone as a whole bunch of other things, a mini computer first, uh, you know, and, and a phone second, third, or fourth, and between texting and, as you say, WhatsApp or uh, FaceTime audio or whatever, the, you know, the, the idea that you're going to actually have to use the phone all the time that way, you, you're right. I think it, it'll get eroded. But before that happens, and you're talking about some of the next iterations that are in, we, we should mention that there's already a kidnapping robocall. Explain that to us. I'm not 100% familiar with that specific robocall, but I've seen a lot of uh, variations of this, things such as virtual kidnapping, et cetera. And what that is is basically using data about people, using um, finding times when they'll be vulnerable, and then trying to wield that information against their psychology. So calling somebody up and saying, you know, we have your child, and giving really, really specific information, offering them a small window of time to pay $1,000, that sort of thing. That's a growing problem. I see us entering into a golden age of digital targeted fraud and extortion. What I mean by that is that there's so much information available about us now, so many different tools to access us, to fool us, that I worry the, the cumulative effect of this is that individuals are going to be in a lot worse position than, um, than they were before. You know, a lot of this discussion around deep fakes, around forgery technologies, um, a lot of it's about politics. A lot of it's about starting a war by accident or a speech that a, a president will give, et cetera. Um, with all due respect to the other academics and, you know, people working on this issue, that is a serious um, problem. But I'm far more concerned about deep fakes and, and these sorts of forgery technologies ruining reputations and relationships for individuals. So, you know, knowing this technology exists is one of the best defenses we have against it, which is why I think, you know, the segment that you're doing here is so valuable. The public education, when people don't know this technology exists, is when it's the most damaging. All right. We're going to stop there. Tharun Wadra, writer, academic, and author of the upcoming book, Identify the Digital Transformation of Who We Are. Thank you for doing this interview. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And thanks to everybody else who helped out with the show, especially Josh Nalea. Now, uh, go out and live your lives, and don't be too afraid of robocalls. Uh, we're going to solve this somehow. Either that or we will be destroyed as people. You used to call me on my cell phone. Late night when you need